0: The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults.
1: From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between.
0: I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How's it going, Lindsay? Good. How are you? Good. Good. It's good to be back. And hopefully we're, we've said this before, but now really hopefully we can get on a more consistent schedule at least um, every few weeks getting a new episode out. So um, we're looking forward to maybe a little more... Stability and what's going on here I think so it It appears that way with the pandemic exactly, yep, so so today we've got a good topic. I think um it's one that affects many people, and others might just have an interest in knowing more about it, so we're going to talk about asthma. right, so we'll kind of um just talk
1: about symptoms to to look for and um, things you can do to control
0: and treatment options and kind of go from there. Um, given that it's a, again, fairly common, often affects um, individuals throughout their life. And we can dig into that a little bit. Right. So what are the common symptoms um,
1: that could trigger uh, you to think about the diagnosis of asthma in a patient?
0: Yeah, so when I think about who might be coming in with asthma, um, you know, it's tricky because I think in the past we would have thought of, you know, kids can be diagnosed with asthma, young adults, but actually it can affect, it can be new in anyone during their lifespan. So I've had older patients too come in with these new symptoms and end up with a diagnosis of asthma. But in general, people are, I would say, most commonly diagnosed earlier in life, Um And symptoms that I would be thinking about would be patients coming in complaining of cough, wheezing, shortness of breath, uh, chest tightness. Um, And typically with asthma, symptoms are not occurring all the time, all day long, but they tend to be intermittent or waking people up at night um, rather than happening all the time. Right. So I think they come on more... uh
1: spontaneously and resolve um and just aren't a constant exactly often there's certain triggers that kind of make an episode happen
0: exactly so you know going out in the cold uh being around animals cats things other allergens um, exercise for many people can be a trigger pollen some for some there are work exposures Um, anything else that you think of lindsay
1: Uh, often we hear of a post-viral infection can be a trigger
0: yeah perfumes Perfumes, smoking smoke things like that right yep so when somebody comes in with these symptoms um when do you start to think about testing lindsay and what what do you start with as far as testing goes oh so
1: often i think i just use the the story uh about their symptoms and when they come on, I certainly look for other um, other things that go along with asthma, which are kind of um, atopy so somebody who has asthma often has other allergic symptoms, so like eczema uh, or allergic rhinitis or nasal polyps, so I would do an exam to look for those things. and. Oftentimes, exam is hard because people don't come in complaining of the symptoms at that very moment, so they can have a very clear and normal lung exam, and we won't see it in the office. So um, sometimes you can get it to happen by asking the, the person you're seeing to kind of blow out as fast and hard as they can there. So take a big, deep breath in and blow out and ha- as hard and fast as you can, and sometimes then you can get a wheeze but oftentimes it'd be a completely normal exam.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes it a little challenging. And again, I think, you know, it's it's a fairly common thing, um, but it really does affect many people. So may, about 26 million in the United States. Um, and like I said, it can be any age. So it's something that we do have to think about. And so as a patient, if you're, you know, if you've been, um, healthy, and then start to kind of develop these intermittent symptoms, either coughing, wheezing, or just feeling like your breathing is tight, it's, it's important to get it checked out for sure.
1: And the, I think when you go to your doctor, they need to, to listen and look for, sometimes we're kind of ruling out other causes that may have similar presentations. So um, we're ruling out heart failure or valve disease or other cardiac causes of shortness of breath. Um and then listening to your lungs, and do you have a different sound that we call crackles that suggests another diagnosis?
0: Absolutely. And then um, next steps that I would think about would be uh, pulmonary testing and probably a chest x ray as well. And so let's, should we spend a minute talking about the pulmonary testing? Yeah. All right. So typically, what we can do for asthma is called spirometry. Um and what this is is they they measure different lung volumes and airflow as you breathe in and breathe out and it gives us a picture of what's happening during the during the phases of breathing as you breathe in and breathe out. So in asthma what happens that causes the wheezing is there's some airway collapse. And this is because of inflammation and kind of that allergic response to whatever is triggering the asthma there's some airway collapse and that leads to wheezing. And that also shows up as we watch people, like Lindsay said, as we watch people breathe out forcefully, that tends to trigger that airway collapse. And so we can see that um, on spirometry testing. Right. So somebody with
1: asthma often has, it takes them a lot longer to exhale all their lung volume than somebody without. And that's because you're pushing against force that air out.
0: Exactly. Yep. There's more resistance. And then there's um you know some medications that we can use while we're doing this testing to see if that improves with treatment. So we can do the testing with no medication and see what the person's baseline is. And then we can try it with dilators that help open up the airways and that should result in improvement. And if we see enough improvement, then we can make the diagnosis of asthma just based on that alone.
1: Oftentimes just the plain spirometry
0: um you can,
1: even if you have asthma, it can look very, very normal. And so there's sometimes some things we have to do to provoke an obstruction or like an asthma exacerbation to to prove it, I guess, on the study. So you can do what's called methicoline
0: challenge. So that's a
1: an irritant that you inhale that will kind of provoke uh, the reactive airways.
0: Exactly. And then we look at dosing uh, what dose is required of methicoline to induce those asthma symptoms and then again look at how how well it responds to usual treatment. Certainly because we're provoking symptoms that's something that should only be done in a clinic that's equipped to handle it if somebody does go into a more severe asthma attack too. Once we kind of
1: know the diagnosis and often before that we've, we've kind of started treatment but um, maybe we can start with the different kind of stages or I guess um, types of asthma.
0: So the the first stage would be mild intermittent which would mean um, less than two days of symptoms per week so not having frequent symptoms, having nighttime symptoms less than twice per month and then mild, mild persistence so now we're having uh, more symptoms they are a little more persistent than in my or than an intermittent asthma Um, so in this situation they're happening more than two days a week but still not every day and maybe three to four times a month at night then we get into moderate persistent and so this is getting to be more serious asthma where patients are having daily Mm -hmm. symptoms and they're having nighttime symptoms more than once a week but not every night in severe asthma, there are symptoms throughout the day, and then um, nighttime symptoms can be every single night. So that's kind of how we grade um, asthma, or at least how we've kind of looked at it historically in the past, and that also helps guide treatment. For the, the intermittent
1: asthma, when you are normal in between little triggered episodes, we give the short-acting um, inhaled beta agonists.
0: Yeah, and so that would be like albuterol or leave albuterol, um, and those, those are just bronchodilators that work over quickly and they don't last particularly long, um, but they can be very effective in opening the airways up. And so for people who are not having frequent symptoms, usually that's enough. Or if it's somebody who has just exercise-induced asthma, they can use their inhaler before they exercise, and typically that'll provide adequate control of symptoms.
1: Right. Um, and then if it's more uh, persistent asthma, we get into kind of daily regular treatment with the inhaled corticosteroid medication.
0: Right. And so the steroids work by helping reduce that inflammation, the inflammatory process that's causing the bronchoconstriction um, or the constriction of the airways. And so steroids kind of help reverse that. They're long-acting. The best, the best way to give steroids in asthma is to do it th- inhaled because then the steroids go right where we want them to go and they don't cause other symptoms. So I think we've talked about in other episodes that steroids are great medications, but they have a lot of systemic side effects. And so if we can avoid, avoid giving them by mouth where they're absorbed throughout the body, it's better. And so what we do in asthma where we anticipate people needing them every day is we use inhaled steroids. And so then we often use combination medicines
1: with the inhaled corticosteroids and then a long-acting beta agonist or the albuterol type of medications
0: instead of the short-acting medicine. Right. And so we're always going to keep those those short-acting inhaler on board for acute symptoms. So if somebody is having more persistent symptoms, we'll have them using a daily inhaler or two daily inhalers plus the short-acting inhaler for as needed, or we call it the rescue inhaler. Um, And so that's just important for people to know when they're being treated, they need to know what the inhalers are for. The one is to really help reduce symptoms and reduce that inflammation. And then the other is, again, the rescue inhaler for when symptoms are still happening. So I think there's some other things um,
1: that you should do besides medication. Certainly you need to reduce exposure to allergens and irritants. Um, And so if you know that uh, being next to uh, somebody smoking usually triggers a problem, then you need to avoid those situations where you might uh, be inhaling the tobacco smoke. Uh, Often it's um, the use of uh, perfumes and those kinds of things. So
0: avoiding contact with that. Absolutely. Um, Avoiding, you know, if there are particular animals or pollens that cause symptoms, and just, you know, trying to stay away from those things as much as you can or not be in enclosed spaces with them. You know, for many people, cats are a trigger, and so just um, not being in a small enclosed space with them can usually help with symptoms. Avoiding the wood-burning stoves or unvented gas fireplaces um, is
1: often helpful, um, ensure adequate ventilation, making sure that you're taking care of other allergens by washing your bedding in, in very hot water, greater than 130 degrees. Using special uh, mattresses and pillows for that are anti-allergen. Um, making sure you remove carpets um, in the bedroom is always good. And they also talk about using air conditioning to maintain humidity less than 50%.
0: And yeah, humidity makes a big difference too. What do you think about air filtration systems, Lindsay? I know a lot of patients will ask about or even go spend the money on you know, high-tech air filtration systems. Are those beneficial for patients with asthma? So studies have shown that they do not help reduce the risk of asthma exacerbations. So instead, it's more the other measures that you talked about, like keeping bedding clean, um, reducing carpet and other places where those allergens can bind. Right. Uh, so,
1: I guess what are some questions you should go to your physician with, or um, to help improve your care of your asthma? I think uh, the biggest thing I think of is is when you visit um, the doctor's office, they should be doing as what's called the asthma control test.
0: Right. So I think you know definitely asking your doctor first of all at the time of diagnosis. You know, is there anything else we need to be thinking about? What else should we be considering for diagnoses? Obviously, if you're testing and symptoms really align with asthma, then it's it's good to just go with that diagnosis and treat it. But there are other conditions that can mimic asthma too, and so those should be ruled out by your doctor. And we kind of mentioned some of those already. Beyond that, once you have the diagnosis and you're getting treated, I think doing the the asthma control test at least once a year and more often if you're having more symptoms can help. It's so what it is is it's just a little five question questionnaire. Um, that helps survey how, how significant your symptoms are, how often you're having symptoms. And it provides an objective measure of, you know, again, how frequently you're having symptoms, how severe the symptoms are. It also lets us, your clinicians, compare, uh, you know, your current symptoms to how you were a year ago to see if things are getting worse or better as we adjust treatment too.
1: And I think the other part of the visit um, for follow up on asthma is to make sure that you and your physician or or their care team has helped you set up an asthma action plan. And what that is is a kind of a step of um, you know green, yellow, and red symptoms um, that puts you into different areas so that you can empower yourself to to adjust your medications or do something different or know when to call your doctor, um, so so it empowers you a little bit, the asthma action plans, to, to know what to do if things
0: change in your symptoms. Exactly, exactly. And I think asthma is one of those illnesses where, you know, we clinicians aren't going to be the ones adjusting your medications every time. We'll certainly be prescribing your medications and telling you how to use them. But the Asthma Action Plan is a guide for, you know, if you're having very infrequent symptoms, maybe you can cut back on something. Um, whereas if your symptoms are escalating a little bit, then we, we have a plan in place so that you can increase your medications. Certainly, as, as things escalate and get worse, we want you to reach out to the clinic or um, if it's an emergency, obviously go into an ER. But the, the plan does empower you to make those adjustments Um, on your own without having to be seen every single time a little adjustment is needed. Sometimes I will have patients add, um, you know, if their symptoms have been pretty well controlled and then they have a mild bump in symptoms, I might have them add, say, a Um, an antihistamine for a while like a Claritin or Zyrtec to see if that'll calm things down a little bit and So besides the inhalers There are a few other little things that we can try just to help minimize symptoms and get things back to baseline And so again the asthma action plan is a specific plan for the patient to kind of follow and help prevent you from um, getting into a bad place with your symptoms. I guess we can talk a little bit about the r- risk
1: factors. Um, there are known risk factors for poor outcomes during exacerbations. And that would be, have you been hospitalized for an exacerbation in the past? So a history of that or intubation required for an asthma attack, then you're more likely for a future um, severe attack like that. Um, multiple asthma exacerbations, So if the more exacerbations you've had in the last year, the more likely you are to have a poor outcome from that. If you're overusing the short-acting beta beta agonists and not ramping up other other kinds of treatment to help stabilize, then that can be a risk factor for a poor outcome during exacerbation. And I think a poor outcome, we're talking about um, needing to be hospitalized and and intubated or having the tube put in your mouth to breathe for you. Um, so prior emergency department visits in the year before put you at risk for that, not using or not adhering to your medications or the inhaled corticosteroids, having to, to use um, the oral corticosteroids often for exacerbations put you at increased risk, and having food allergies or um, other kind of difficult, stressful things happening in your life actually put you at risk for, for poorer outcomes during an exacerbation.
0: Yeah, I, I think, um, and of course just the, the severity of your illness based on your spirometry, the the inhaling tests to see, um, can demonstrate your risk as well. So more, more severe disease there obviously is going to put you at higher risk for uh, more frequent complications.
1: You can get a little spirometer for at home that you can help judge the severity of your exacerbation or disease at that moment in time. And that can help play into um, what you do with medications and and help you decide um, what you need to do about, do you need to be seen in the emergency department or not?
0: Yeah. And kind of along with that. So again, that's kind of another way to self-empower and to monitor how your disease is doing. If you check that daily, you kind of know what your baseline is. If you see a drop, then it's time to make some adjustments. The
1: other thing, sometimes um, if you're really prone to allergy leading to asthma exacerbations, then often um, you need to see an allergy as a specialist to help, you know, maybe then doing some other things for allergy control um,
0: can help limit Exacerbations, absolutely, yep. And um, as a primary care doctor,s we can certainly manage some of this. Lindsay, what's your what's your threshold for referring patients onward?
1: Well, I think if it was the frequent allergy um, triggers, then I would send to the allergist. If it if they'd required hospitalization for asthma, or were having frequent exacerbations despite uh, ma- maintaining on the medications. Um, that we've talked about, then I would say it's time to go to a pulmonologist because there's some newer um, monoclonal antibody medications that I don't know how to uh, use at this point. That's when a pulmonologist would need to be involved.
0: Right. And so those antibodies actually work to kind of suppress your immune system, again, locally at the lung level to help reduce symptoms. And so those really require a specialist for management. Um, and my other question, Lindsay, is what about spirometry? So formal spirometry. We talked about doing that as a diagnostic test. Beyond that, how often are you ordering spirometry on your patients with asthma? Let's say somebody who just has kind of mild, intermittent symptoms.
1: I may never um, actually have them do them if we're controlling things easily. I say certainly if things were changing um and they were having more difficulty with maintenance then I might be a time to do spirometry again but I don't know that I would check it on a regular basis otherwise
0: yeah i think you know it used to be something that some clinics would do in the clinic we're not doing that anymore unfortunately i guess um but again i think a lot of times we can manage just based on symptoms alone unless patients are sick enough that they're seeing a specialist and then of course they're doing those tests more frequently Great. So we talked some about, um, you know, non-pharmacologic treatment, just by reducing allergens. You know, keeping keeping things in your home and your sleeping area clean and minimize the allergens there. Um, I've read before too that vitamin D deficiency can result in poorer asthma control. Um, And so, you know, making sure that vitamin D levels are adequate can help. Also, of course, getting like a yearly flu shot, getting pneumonia vaccines, making sure that you're up to date on those preventive things can also help reduce exacerbations.
1: I think obesity is also an important risk factor and weight loss um, and maintaining a, a more ideal body weight can help improve asthma control and lung function.
0: Absolutely. Obesity really puts extra stress on the lungs and reduces the lung capacity. And so weight loss can make a big difference for those patients. And I know lots of people like to try um,
1: alternative treatments like acupuncture and herbal therapies. Uh, And they've tried to do some studies to see if these things are beneficial. And although there's not many, um, there is no evidence to support those things for control of asthma.
0: Right. I would say the one thing that maybe can make a difference right now, especially as we know that stress can increase exacerbations, would be doing things like mindfulness and stress reduction to help lower that stress or to help you be able to control your symptoms a little bit when you start to notice your breathing getting out of hand. And so doing some mindfulness training can potentially be beneficial. I don't think we're going to see any studies on that, um, but I think that there's probably good, good information suggesting that that would be beneficial. I agree. Um, Do you have anything
1: different to say about kind of the exercise-induced asthma? I mean, can people still exercise if they have exercise-induced asthma?
0: Yeah, I I think uh, I definitely still encourage those patients to exercise. And I would say um, it's probably more important to be more consistent with, with exercise for that group. Because that will help them be able to control their symptoms better. So, in general, um, warming up before, so doing a you know a five minute warm up at least to get the heart rate and the lungs going before they start can be beneficial. Um, you know, if if they're going out in cold weather, then wearing a mask or other other thing to warm the air and add some humidity can certainly help. And then again, just using a short acting inhaler before exercise can be beneficial. Um, you know, certainly for I don't use it as often for patients with asthma, but pulmonary rehab is um, something that could potentially be beneficial for these patients. And so what that is, is it's basically physical therapy where patients go and they get to exercise in a gym and they're closely monitored by therapists who are trained in um, COPD, asthma, other lung disease. And so they're watching oxygen, they're watching respiratory rates and helping make sure, helping develop an exercise routine that works yeah and I think that's really helpful just to give confidence in somebody who may um, have some
1: some fear uh, because of a prior exacerbation with exercise.
0: yeah. And then I think, like we talked about, just um, you know, just modifying your activity a little bit for cold weather and things like that to really reduce reduce symptoms. Um, what are times that that would indicate maybe a need for hospitalization
1: in somebody with an asthma attack?
0: Yeah, so I would say, you know, typically, we're looking for a worsening and so let's let's just take a minute and define what an attack is right because we talked about what symptoms are and talked about how they're usually intermittent so when we consider somebody to be having an asthma attack or an asthma exacerbation they're having more frequent symptoms um, you know waking up at night more having symptoms throughout the day maybe not getting as good a response to their inhalers as they normally would so you know if if they're having an increase in symptoms and we've made some medication adjustments and we're still not seeing a response, then it might be time to think about hospitalization. Certainly if somebody is having continuous symptoms Or they're um, having an acute attack where they can't breathe and their oxygen is dropping those are indications for immediate hospitalization and that you know somebody might recognize that because they can't speak in full sentences they really feel like they're just not getting enough air they can't lie down because they're so short of breath Um, those would be signs for patients to know that okay this is time to go in Right, and hopefully some of that will be outlined in, in the asthma action plan that you make. Um, and oftentimes there's
1: things we can do before you get to that stage to prevent those kinds of things from happening. So sometimes um, if, if you, your asthma action plans you're getting higher and higher in the list and you call your physician and you can do kind of an oral corticosteroid treatment to hopefully prevent um, needing to come in to be hospitalized. So that would be like five, five days of a, 40 milligrams of prednisone would be something that would be a typical um, prescription in that kind of situation.
0: Exactly. And then just monitoring to make sure or evaluating to make sure that there's not an infection that's triggering symptoms or um, some other thing that's causing causing worsening.
1: How often do you would you ever prescribe antibiotics for somebody with asthma?
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that really depends. I wouldn't, I certainly don't for just normal exacerbations, but um, if they come in and there are other signs or symptoms of an infection, so of a pneumonia or even a otitis, an ear infection, then I would certainly think about antibiotics to prevent worsening of their asthma and to treat the underlying infection.
1: Right. And I think uh, most often kind of a, Asthma exacerbations after an infection would generally that's from a kind of um, viral. More more often, I would say from a viral infection that would lead to a an exa- asthma exacerbation. Exactly. So those we wouldn't treat with antibiotics, but but oftentimes you know you can get other types of of infections that certainly could contribute, and you'd need to be evaluated and treated for those.
0: Yep, certainly influenza pneumonias, covid-19, all of those things can trigger asthma exacerbations. So they need to you know, if symptoms are worsening, we need to we need to check people out in the clinic and see what's going on.
1: All right. So I think kind of the biggest thing um is uh, if you are having triggers, you need to kind of identify what those might be and avoid them. Um Make sure that your air is um, on the drier side in your home. So, you're using dehumidifiers or air conditioner if needed. Have the short acting, if anybody with asthma should have a short acting beta agonist like the albuterol on hand for acute symptoms to control those. And you should have a few so that you have one in your home and one that you take with you to places that you go.
0: Yeah. And let's just uh, talk for a moment to the other thing that. Um, I think sometimes gets neglected when people get an inhaler is learning how to use it properly and learning about spacers. Do you want to talk for a minute about that Lindsay? Yeah I think that's important and often we think we know how to use those things because
1: it seems like an easy thing to do but it really does take some coordination and timing of when you push the button and when you breathe and so um, asking the pharmacist or, or your physician to help you uh, evaluate that and watch how you're using it to see if you're getting it appropriately because you want to get the medicine that you're being prescribed to make sure that it's working. So um, spacers are little plastic tubes that you can put on the end of the uh, inhalers that um, help give the medicine the time, help you breathe in and give the medicine the time to
0: get um, from the tubing into your lungs when you're taking the breath in at the right time. Exactly. We want the medication to get to your lungs and not just to, to hit the roof of your mouth and stop. Right. Yep. I think we kind of hit on the high points of asthma. So certainly, if you have more questions, send us an email, and we'll be happy to answer those in another episode.
1: So I think that kind of concludes our information about asthma. But if I think we do have a, a pearl today.
0: Yeah. So I wanted. I, I was introduced. A week ago to a new beverage which is kind of a fun refreshing drink um, that is not alcoholic and so if you need a drink just for your you know evening relaxation and you're looking for something that's fairly healthy um, these are these are kind of fun so they're called shrubs have you heard of shrubs before Lindsay I have not all right So what it is, it's basically apple cider vinegar flavored with other fruit juice. So you can get it like cherry flavor or um, huckleberry or different, different flavors of apple cider vinegar. And you add about an ounce and a half or two ounces of that to a, a glass uh, a glass full of sparkling water, whatever you like for your sparkling water, and, and some ice. And they're delicious and very refreshing. So that's kind of um, a fun new drink that I learned about that was not something I'd tried before, but All right. a nice way to, to relax without alcohol. And not, yeah, non-alcoholic cocktail. I like it. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Especially because I think there probably is has been
1: quite a bit more alcoholic consumption during our pandemic here.
0: Absolutely. And I think the more, the more we learn about alcohol, I, I was talking with my brother who's a cardiologist and there you know, they are a lot of toxicities to alcohol. It's hard on the heart. We already know it's hard on the liver. And so um, you know, if you find that you're having a nightly or a few nightly cocktails, maybe switch a few of them over to a non-alcoholic drink some of the time. I think that's a great idea very good well thanks so much for joining us today Uh, you can send us any questions feedback comments at mail at everythingdoc.com find us on twitter and facebook and please uh, write write and ask us questions
1: information that you'd want us a topic you'd want us to talk about Um, rate us on any of your um, podcasting platforms that
0: helps get the word out there share us share us with your family and friends we appreciate it Uh, have a good day thanks so much for listening bye-bye bye